This is the 966 episode 89. Hello, Mr. Richard Wilson. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, laughing once again. We're, we're giggling about something in advance of this. And then we say, oh, let's go. <laughs> we so, say, Let, let's go as we're laughing. Oh, good. I'm, it's true. It's true. <laughs> 89. Well, 89. That's a big number. Keeps getting bigger. It's very exciting, Richard, to keep this going each week. Um, just as like very motivating. We're getting tons of feedback and tons of comments and that grows every week. So does our audience. So does our audience on the, on the podcast platform as well. And Richard, this week for episode 89, we have just a tremendous guest. Dr. Hamid Mira is the CEO of the center Saudi center for commercial arbitration. You guys are going to love this conversation and you're going to love Dr. Mira. He's such an impressive and accomplished person. What he's done with the center for commercial arbitration since it launched in just 2018 really impactful for Vision 2030, attracting foreign investment, building confidence in the business community. It's so cool. And Richard, this this is just great. I'm excited for this. We, You never know. But this is one of the reasons I think people should take a look at Saudi Arabia and a little more closely pay attention and not just go on stereotypes. Um, I met Dr. Mira in, in February, did great on the podium. But when you, you never know, you know, I hadn't seen a video of him just knocks it out of the park so competent so informed so articulate you know such energy and you know it just it, apart from the professional aspect of doing his job really well in a very important endeavor in terms of the, the you know Saudi Center for commercial arbitration really critical for the larger picture uh, just brings so much uh, positive, I guess what's the word image you know if, if, if you know just such a capable competent individual and there's bunches of them mm-hmm. in saudi arabia so we, i felt fortunate we felt fortunate to, and and this was a really you know we sometimes use the term just push play boy this was a push play this is and a true push play just you, killed it yep you always worried as podcasts hosts and producers about the guests not talking enough or not being forthcoming enough or being too shy that will not be the case, as you all will hear in our conversation with Dr. Mira. He is, as you said, enormously competent and very, um, I just very passionate about what he's doing and the work Passion's that he and his team are doing. So it's just a really great conversation. So we'll be airing that shortly. Before that conversation, Richard, we're gonna we're going to be talking a little bit about a little nine six six field day outing yes. for the boys. The nine six six boys <laughs> headed to a live golf event in D.C. There's a small update we want to do, Richard, on Lucid, and then after our conversation with Dr. Mira, we'll finish up with Yella. Some good topics we'll hit on there. I should mention as well, Richard, we've mentioned this before on the podcast. If you just want to skip ahead to certain parts of the conversation or the podcast, like to jump ahead to Dr. Mira or to go to Yella or to go to the one big things, we put in the show notes links to those exact timestamps. So if you scroll down like on your phone, and look into the show notes, you'll see that each segment has a specific starting time and that's actually linked. And if you click it, it'll actually jump forward to that starting point. We don't care. We're just happy that you're here and listening or watching us so you can listen to or watch anything you want. So we're just, again, happy that you're here. And as I mentioned, Richard, we love hearing from all of you. We did see some folks at the Live Golf event that actually recognized us. That was cool. Yes. Um, so it was nice to see you guys there in D.C., um richard some housekeeping as well before we get started first a correction from last week from abdul rahman 
Sultan bin Salman Al Saud is no longer the chairman of the Saudi Space Commission. Abdullah Al Sawa Al Swaha, excuse me, is the current Minister of Communications and Information Technology, a rising star really in Saudi Arabia. He is now yes. the chairman of the Saudi Space Commission. Prince Sultan was the chairman, but isn't anymore. So I got that wrong. I apologize. We're here to be uh, accurate or as accurate as we can be. So that's uh, that's a little correction there. Also should be noted, he is the King Salman's eldest surviving son, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Um, so yes. yeah, a little correction there. Well, um, we need to uphold our journalism ethics, and that's a good thing. As we know, uh, you know, corrections actually bring attention to the to the mistake more so than the mistake itself. But we want to get it right, and we love it when our our, our listeners and our viewers are paying attention. Mm -hmm. And I really like it when it's you who fouled up. Yeah, well, it usually is. Well, I mean, let's go ninety nine percent of the time. <laughs> that whoever the, you know, Abdul Rahman. I mean, he how many gaps have I made? You know, endless. And uh, but, you know, th this one happened to be yours. So, yep. Well, as a wise man once said, if I know one thing, it is that I know nothing. <laughs> that's uh, that's me. And then another housekeeping issue, Richard, just wanted to put it out there. I will be heading to Riyadh on Monday night. So if anybody's around and want to say hi, hit me up. So uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Richard, let's get to it. What's your well, I, I already know, but. Can you share? What's your one big thing this week? Well, we're doing a joint one, I guess. We're sort of, yeah. We're going to do a lot, yeah, on this, and we'll just do a quick yeah, little second one. Yep. You know, yep. this will be a conversational chat because Lucia and I and actually we 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 uh, attended the Live Golf Tournament outside of DC this last weekend, uh, Saturday. So it was day two of of a three day tournament. And uh, shout out to our friend Amr and uh, Jenna who got us the very nice tickets and access and uh you know we just wanted to share some of our thoughts so i mean lucian you want to give it a go in terms of your first impressions because this was an important field trip for us it was you know it's a little little bit of investigation and research because we talk about the live conceptually all the time it was really fun to see it in person Totally. And we had with us uh, yes, two-time former guest of the 966, Colonel David DeRoche, who is just as fun in person as he is on the podcast, which is to Maybe say a lot so of fun. Because he does, he does, we don't have to say no, no censorship for any of us. So, I mean, even more fun. That's right. Um, well, so if I can just provide some, I guess, Im impressions of the event, it was really fun. Like, I, I will say just really two things. One is that it's sort of like so let's just say it's golf, but louder is their motto. It's actually golf, but louder. It's golf, but with techno and it had more of a party vibe to it. Super fun. Um, and then the other thing that I just want to throw in here um, is that president, former President Trump was there hanging out pretty much right next to us, um, which was really interesting. He was walking up and down the driving range. Um, so obviously he owns the resort or the golf course in which it this was hosted so that was crazy to see him just really close to us so yeah i mean it was it was really fun richard it was awesome so let's go to let's start from the beginning let's talk about the execution of it so we got the tickets uh i'm gonna arrange for the tickets um communication was really good in terms of where to park what to do how to get there uh the property's huge the, so there was plenty of space uh everything was really well run um, plenty of space, plenty of room, clean. 
uh, and this was important. You, you know, uh, Sophie, uh, Lucian's wife and two kids came. Um, and uh, I think it was, oh, you can speak to that. But uh, so from a fan experience point of view, so we did two different things. I think it was good. When you got there, you went to the sort of the, the uh, posted up at the driving range. Mm-hmm. I got there. I posted up elsewhere. Uh, and then I walked around on the pack nine a little bit because I just wanted to see the course. Um, first of all, <clears throat> that's a unique opportunity for live golf attendees. The PGA doesn't have uh, spectators coming to the driving range. And live has actually set up stands in, in a whole viewing area. So you can go there. That's actually, you know, it, it, I would love to have done that if I could have done them both. Um so I think, and, and what, what was it like? Was it pretty cool to see these guys hit? Well, yes, Richard, because we were also in the club 54, which was like the VIP area. And that was like really close to these guys hitting. So it was like 15 to 20 feet away. So, I mean, yeah, that was really cool. So I also, also should add, um, I first played golf in 2018 or something like that. I'm now really into it. I really like it now, but I've never been to a live golf event ever. So like, I don't, I can't compare this to a PGA event, but all I can say is that this was really, really like, it had more of a fun, it seemed like there was a lot going on. Like, so my children are so young that they're kind of just like wandering around, but I think they probably would like live golf more because there's just, I mean, there's guys flying out of airplanes and parachuting down there's like live music and there's just so much going on. But yeah, to answer your question, the range was cool. And actually, Richard, if I may, I did leave, and I know you did as well, with a little bit of swag. I'm going to put it on right now for the rest of the segment. Do you have your range goats hat? Did you I get? I do. Hold, Hold on, on a second, time. everybody. I'm going to put it. this on. All right. There we go. For those of you, uh, oh, the earphones fit. For those of you watching, you can see I'm wearing a Live Golf baseball hat. Oh, then <laughs> Richard's got his. Let's go. That's awesome. Yes. Okay. We are now, we are now chapeaued up for the rest of the segment. Anyway. Yes. The range was sweet. It was really cool. And you were over at the other club 54 area, which was right near the like sixth or seventh hole, right on the hole too. Well, no, really it was right cool. at 18. Right at 18. Oh, was that 18? Okay, cool. Yeah. Right at 18. And, um, and so, and I walked around, I have been to a PGA tournament and completely different vibe, completely mm-hmm. different vibe. I had thought actually the music might be irritating. It's not. You guys get accustomed to it. And apparently, players like it too. And on every twelfth hole in every tournament, players get their own walk-up song. So, oh, sick! Cool, like yes. baseball. Yeah, yeah. Um, so again, you know, I'm walking around. Um, plenty of you know uh, restrooms for men and women. <clears throat> plenty of uh, concessions. Nice setup. All crisp and clean. Uh, the shotgun starts awesome. Yeah, it agreed. really spreads everybody out. I mean, I decided, uh, you know, this is a Range Goats hat because um, Range Goats is one of the 12 teams. Uh, uh, Harry Varner's on it, who won this tournament, Bubba Watson, um, Taylor Gooch, Thomas Pieter, who's a long driving European. I think he's Belgian. Um, I just liked, you know, I thought that was a pretty good group and I loved the logo. Uh, you know, it's as simple as that, but uh, it's kind of cool because people do have teams and get invested in the teams. And look, so this this tournament, Harry Varner won it 
four million dollar prize. Uh, team Torque, which is, I guess is how they pronounce it, was uh, you know one of his team that was three million split between four guys, seven hundred fifty k. This is apart from however you finished. Um, and I think this is the seventh tournament out of 14 this year. So, and uh, Torquay is the only team to repeat, you know, in terms of winning. But that's, you know, for Team Torquay, you know, that's 1.5 mil for, you know, winning two tournaments as a team. Um, so, uh, so where was I? So, so the, you know, so I started out, I want, I, I saw Bubba Watts at tee off, Phil Mickelson, a bunch of other people. But I mean, you're, you're 10, 12 feet from them. Yeah. Uh, and you walk from hole to hole. It was never, it was, it was, it was full and you know, you felt like it was well attended, but it wasn't overwhelming or a crush and, uh, you could move about quite easily. Uh, you know, so I thought the viewing experience was great and, and I didn't feel constrained. I could go anywhere I wanted to look at whatever I want. What were we doing? We were sitting at you, me and Dave were, were standing on a bluff between, I think like 11 and 15 or whatever and we're watching um these guys finish out on 11 we turn around and brooks kepka's teeing off at 15 i mean we basically walk over there and and we're standing what 15 feet yeah even less than that and actually i'm gonna run some video here for those of us watching on youtube because we were like right there when he teed off and there's basically nobody around us i would say less than 15 feet richard like right next to the yeah. tee box he just shows up he's like hey everybody and there's bombs one on a par five which is really cool i still i'm still celebrating my pga win yeah. you know, five days ago and there were some <laughs> audience comments to that effect as well um it just yeah if i can just sort of add to that i mean like it was it was so much more fun than i imagined seeing live golf would be like i really like watching golf on tv but i'm also like i'll go like an hour where i don't pay attention to anything and I'm doing something else, but kind of just like the vibe or whatever. I don't know if they figured out the TV presentation yet, but in person, it was really fun. Like there was just like a relaxed vibe to it. And it just seemed like golf was the main event, but there were so many other events going on as well. You know, it, I, it was really cool. I mean, just really cool. It, and it was, and purists will say, you know, well, it should be competitive edge. And, and that, and, and, you know, there's, there's that side of it. I thought it was, uh, Again, you know, the shorts on TV, this, and I guess this is me, the shorts on TV, I didn't think looked like, you know, all that great. Uh, the music I thought would be irritating. In person, it looks perfectly in place. Everyone dressed out and up close. These guys are, you know, they're not just, they're not cargo shorts, you know, you know, you know, dad cargo shorts. They're looking pretty good, pretty sharp. Mm -hmm. uh, the music's fine. I liked there was a collegial feel for the players. And now, you know, Phil Mickelson was walking up one hole and um, it was a ball in the green. It was not his. Somebody was still had to approach. So he just sort of walked up and marked it. Now, in, in a PGA tournament, you can't touch another player's ball. Now, if they say, yeah, you can go ahead. So I don't know, maybe there's a communication back up the fairway. But it was just interesting to watch the whole thing because he very, you know, marked it, you know, flipped the ball to his um uh, to the caddy or whomever, uh, and and then at, later when they were putting, he pulled out the the flag. He was tended the flag uh, yeah. again. Maybe that's the norm in a PGA tournament. I don't think I've seen it. It always seems to be a caddy or whatever. Uh, but it, it, it you did have a collegial feel, and absolutely, there's more energy. You know, it, it was it was quite festive. 
being welcomed at the entrance, Richard, of the event. So you parked, this is in Northern Virginia. It's not actually in DC proper, of course, but this is in sort of Northern Virginia. And I think it is in Leesburg or is it Ashburn? It's, it's like a, a yeah. Northern Virginia suburb, yeah. but it's right on the Potomac River. So you park at a local uh, parking lot or area or mall or whatever, and then they have buses that take you over. The bus ride was a little bit long, I guess, but you just there isn't the parking at a club like that to accommodate what seemed right. like, I would, I would know, a very large crowd. I mean, I was kind of impressed. I was kind of expecting it to be like, oh, it's a little bit sparse. Like you've seen some images and... You know, in the media too, there's a lot of pro PGA bias, and I don't know why that is or or what's going. I mean, I'm sure it's complex, but um, it just seemed like it was really happening. But anyway, yeah. So you park far away, and then they bust you directly to the entrance, and then at the entrance, Richard, there was there was a I think a 14 piece brass marching band welcoming <laughs> yeah. you and and playing as you arrived, and of course, both of my children both loved and were terrified by that, but mostly loved it. Um, it just, it, what I didn't see a lot of other kids, which I kind of felt bad about, but it had a very family friendly kind of vibe. I mean, it was really just, it it was golf, but louder. Yeah. There was (laughs) a huge activity. There was a huge activity area too. Um, and, um, obviously merch and that sort of thing where we got our hats and, um, it's, it, it was, it was, it was, I, it was really good field, research for me and we i don't want to you know i think for both of us because you know we talk about the theory of live we talk about the reality of live we talk about how it relates to pga and the response and the viability of it and it, and it being a loss leader something we've said many times um it's interesting seeing in person yeah i mean it was it was a lot of fun i'd go again for sure. i would go again i was just about to say um i would absolutely go again and i think that these things are going to get better and better i mean I'm sure that the first event and the first number of events were, there were some glitches. We've Richard, we've put on major events, not anything quite yeah. this big, but huge events that take a lot of planning and there's always some glitches, but you get better at it over time. This seemed like it had gotten some experience and they knew what to do and what not to do. It just seemed really well organized. There was a lot of staff working there. Course looked amazing. Yes. Um, it, and it just sort of had this like, they weren't going to cut costs feel to it. They're looking to build the customer base and they want a good customer experience. I would 100% go again. You know, that's a good point because this is their 15th tournament. They did eight last year. They're doing 14 this year. This is the seventh. They're doing 14, 2023, 14, 2024, 14, 2025. It looked like a well-oiled machine. Signage, lots of, lots of structures all over the place. Um, so, you know, it's a vast area to cover, but signage everywhere. I think it is kind of fun, and this was something to point out to me. So if you're going, if you're, if they're, you know, on the PGA, every tournament has its own signage, and and but on the day we were there, obviously it's all live golf everywhere, and they're basically their their two two PR frames are are uh, golf but louder or don't blink. So you see that everywhere. You see live everywhere. All the players have their um, team logos, you know. So you know. I think Dave was saying most players in PGA look like NASCAR, uh, uh, you know, cars, vehicles, you know, with just tagged, you know, tagged up with sponsors and that sort of thing. Um, uh, and obviously some of these guys lost their sponsors when they went to live. But the point is, is all pretty clean. It's your team logo. And basically that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it, it's just a different feel. I, I think um, 
it's just going to be really interesting because I, I think it's really compelling the, the way this, well, two things. At the end of this year, they're going to have a qualifying tournament. So uh, at the start, it's sort of like here, you come, you come, you come, we'll give you money to do this, you know, this, and, you know, and, and so it, it seems a little haphazard, maybe not really um, uh, organized and formulated. That's just a perception. But at the end of the year, you're going to have, there's going to, you're going to have a tournament. They're going to have a, a qualifying tournament. Top 24 guys are in mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, leaders points over the course of the season. Uh, bottom four guys get relegated. <laughs> and, and that 20, 25 to whatever, 44, you know, unless you're a, an exception, you have a spot, essentially an exception. Like if you were like Phil, you know, Phil's not in the top 24. He's going to get in because he's got a four-year agreement. There's others that have this. And Liv sort of equates that to people who have won a, ma- you know, won a majors and have been exempted like on the PGA. But anyway, you can see the field becoming more competitive and when people have, you know, the the chance to to drop, you know, be relegated, you know, it's got an opportunity to bring in new people. So so for the, the qualifying tournament, they'll invite like the top 36 guys from the Asian tour, the, you know, top 20 guys from um, amateur tours, uh, world amateur golf rankings. And so it's going to be you're going to have more of that feel where it's a competitive environment you know and now it's sort of like hey let's go have fun and play golf obviously there's a lot of money to be made so and obviously these guys are competitors so they do compete but it's going to be more formalized i think and absolutely if you're thinking about this and you know that the pif is committed to 24 and 25 it, it's 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 a significant option if you're a good golfer, it's a really significant option. And 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 as we saw, the the format is fun. The the the, the golf is fun. Yeah, and you know that's like a. It, this is obviously a massive startup, but those are startup costs to get the product to be viable for the public, and then eventually these players, like you just described, earn their spots in the league, and then the league keeps going. So it isn't just a place where you have these veteran guys with huge followings and and fans, and then you just come and watch them basically play an exhibition match. This gets more and more interesting and more and more competitive as time goes on. And then you get this public buy-in because there's some new faces and these guys are up and comers. Like you mentioned Richard on Saturday, and we, I don't know if we ended up seeing if he was there, but the number one amateur had went to the live tour. And I just can't remember now. Um, but but I mean you'll you'll see more and more of that where it's a real choice for amateurs and and would be PGA pros to go play at Live and play a lot less frequently, especially if they can still get into the major tournaments, which it looks like they s- still sort of will. Um, so it it was just really really cool experience. Um, the course was really nice. I think they have thirty six holes there, and they used a hybrid of the eighteen best holes to sort of formulate the tournament but a lot of it was right on the potomac river which is beautiful and and really cool to see so kudos to everybody putting it on um thank you to you richard and shukran to amr and jetta (laughs) for hooking us up because that was really really fun my family really loved it um i you know they're so young the kids are so young that they're not it's hard to make sense of what's going on but 
now my son Pierce is talking about going to the golf tournament pretty much every day. I'm like, well, it's going to be <laughs> a little while until we go to another golf tournament, bud. But and they did great, by the way. They had, a, you know, that was nice to be in the VIP area, but they did great. And um, that was a hop in place at the VIP thing. That was a hop in place. Thank you for that. I take all the credit for their good behavior and none of the blame for their bad. <laughs> um, but thank you also to my wife, Sophie, because she sort of read the room. And when Pierce and Coco started melting down, she was like, hey, I'm going to take them and you can hang with Richard and David. And that was great. That that At that point, we got to kind of leave the VIP area and walk around all the different holes. And it just was really a fun Fun event, fun afternoon. I would 100% go back and I would also go to ones in other cities, especially if I would, you know, if I happen to be there or anything like that. Um, I looked to see if they were doing one in Boston this year. I think they did one in Boston last year. But as you know, my brother lives there. So it'd be kind of cool to, I was telling him about this. I was like, hey, like you're a newcomer to golf as well. This is a fun sort of experience. There's a little bit more of like a carnival fair (laughs) atmosphere, but very organized and really cool. So just congrats to them and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I had a great time. I had a blast. Well, you know, uh, Sophie wins the MVP for sure. Um, so shout out to her. Uh, the, the, um, they have eight, eight of their fourteen this year in the U.S. So I mean, that's a, that's building a market there. And, and you know, they're on the CW. It's not a golf channel per se, but I've watched it and been just fine. Um, you know, the same things apply in a lot of ways. I mean, this is our personal experience. We liked it. I think increasingly people will come and like it. It is interesting the coverage. ESPN almost does nothing. So I, you know, on the ESPN site, they barely cover it. Uh, Washington Post, obviously, which has an antagonistic relationship in general with Saudi Arabia because of Jamal Khashoggi, um, you know, covered it. They had a couple articles actually by a journalist who was out there in a couple of days. Both of them pretty positive mm-hmm. uh, about it and enjoying the experience. Um, uh, but the same things apply. If you're a player, you know, the, the players, they, you know, I'm sure they lament not being able to earn player points uh, on the PGA, you know, which, of course, uh, gives them an opportunity, you know, to, to either Ryder Cup, FedEx, uh, majors, that sort of thing. But it was fun to it's fun to see this in person. It was a well-run operation and it was a really enjoyable day. Yeah, and you should see that change soon. I mean, with Brooks winning the PGA Championship, his fifth major, and then five days later playing in a live golf event, it makes it more and more relevant. I mean, it makes it more and more that the mainstream media, a term that I absolutely hate, but sort of the main blue chip media outlets can't ignore it. And the more that this goes on, the more that will be the case, or other media outlets and startup media sites will fill in the, the gap because people will want to know what's going on. And that's the purpose of the business of journalism is to sell stories and interest. And so if the interest is there, there you go. You'd think so. And this was won by Harry Varner, an African-American golfer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he, he hadn't won on the PGA. He won this, a big deal. Uh, he won in Saudi last year. Remember that 90-foot putt? 90-foot putt. At Royal yeah, so cool. <laughs> um, you know, crowd was into it, fired up. Uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting story, but obviously, you know, it, we'll see how it, we we'll see how it rolls. But it surely was fun to see. So, where are we going next with the live event? Well, like, what are the upcoming locations? I don't have it in front of me. Oh, I don't have it in front of me either. Um, so this is seven. They've got seven more to go. Um, so yeah, and you know, it's a mix between international and and which is kind of interesting too. If you're a, a you know, if you're an American, if you're on the PGA, it's PGA, it's all American uh, venues. 
you know, if you're on live, you're going to have some international travel and get to see places maybe you haven't seen before, especially if you're a young golfer. Yeah, sweet. So, Richard, they leave the U.S., they go to Spain, Valderrama, and then they go to London, and then they're back in the U.S. at the Greenbrier, which is... Oh, interesting. That's a striking far. distance for the boys. Yes. Early August. Um, Greenbrier is wonderful. Um, really cool. The last time I was in the Greenbrier, Richard, I think I've told you this story, a really short story, and I'm sorry, everybody, but I have to tell you. <laughs> no, um, there is this uh, TV show on the Discovery Channel, I think, called Doomsday Preppers. And they sent Sophie and I out there before we had children to stay in the Greenbrier, which is where Congress used to plan to yes. go in the event of a nuclear strike. Yes. So they were trying to generate publicity for their new show, Doomsday Preppers, which is all about people that spend their whole life prepping for Doomsday. So you talk about, uh, with all due respect, some of the more colorful Eccentric. characters that you can get in the world, these guys and uh, men and women and families that are truly afraid of the world ending. So they bring them to this luxury resort <laughs> and sort of just to generate, I guess, some social media publicity for TV show. But it was really cool. You get to tour the bunker, like it goes way underground where Congress would actually set up and most uh, men and women of Congress would go and live if Washington DC were to be nuked. Right. So anyway, that's where the next uh, U.S. live event will be. The Greenbrier actually kind of looks like Congress, too, which is cool. And then Trump, Bedminster, Chicago, Miami, and then it finishes up in Jeddah. So really, really cool. Very cool. I'll be interested in Greenbrier because, you know, it's not a big place. And, and the, the course is actually kind of tight, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and this this operation uh, this last weekend, again, had 36 holes, huge property to spread out on. It'll be interesting how they they set up for that. Yeah, White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Um, really. So, how do what do you how, how how do you get invited to do? Were you on a mailing list or yeah to uh, the Doomsday Prepper thing? Yeah, we have this. Yeah, they well, so <laughs> they go by they went by social media like influencer. This was like 2013 oh, or whatever, and so oh, yeah, right. it was Sophie all Sophie. Was definitely, yeah, yeah, definitely all that. Yeah, exactly. So, and yeah. I remember when she asked me, I was like, "Yes, I absolutely want to do this." And it was really cool, <laughs> yeah. and actually, we kind of got into the show until we fell out of love with the show because it was really <laughs> kind of sad. Uh, obviously the world hasn't ended. So you just kind of think about people living in perpetuity, you know, in a, in a bunker or <laughs> saving up stuff. So anyway, <laughs> wow, we really, we really took a little bit of a, a turn there. Um, well, I'm delighted you guys dodged that, that particular bullet. Yes, me too. <laughs> me too. Uh, but congrats to Liv for, uh, and the, the people working with Liv and the executive team that are putting this together and making it such a fun event to attend. I mean, I'm 100% interested in going again, uh, Richard. So just really cool for them. It was, yeah, congrats. It was an extremely well-run well operation, fully staffed, um, no uh, expense spared, it appeared to make it a nice spectator experience. And it, it was, it, it was exactly that. Yep. Richard, my one big thing this week, a very short one big thing before I do it, are we going to leave the hats on? Should we leave the hats on? Who cares? Right. Let's, let's what leave the, the hats on. Yeah. yeah. What the heck? Yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit about lucid as a PIF investment. Um, the cars <laughs> itself, yeah. <laughs> yeah, now I'm like, like now I'm looking at myself really in the hat. I'm like, is anyone taking me really seriously here? Yeah. <laughs> Look like, at this pro. Well, I'm even dumber looking. Hey, <laughs> this is good. Um, 
Anyway, Lucid, we've talked about it. I just kind of wanted to keep the beat going. There was some news this week. Lucid stock dropped pretty significantly today on news that the group is raising about $3 billion in a common stock offering with the majority of money coming from the EV makers, Saudi owners, the public investment fund, which also owns Live Golf. The stock is down about 15%, and that's over the last 24 hours. And since um, sometime roughly in the last year is down about 60%. So it's been a tough year for Lucid. Uh, the company announced the raise along with a corresponding investment from the PIF. And this was confirmed by Bloomberg earlier this week. The fund already owns 60% of Lucid, which is based in California. So I'm not sure with this new extra $1.8 billion of stock in a private placement uh, gets the PIF in terms of ownership. Significant amount of investment. Uh, the company says it intends to use the proceeds to um use essentially for general corporate purposes it does have some cash on hand i think they have four billion dollars on hand but they i need i guess need this money the pif first invested in lucid in 2018 and then steadily accumulated extra shares until it went public in 2021 through a spac which is a special purpose acquisition company um and briefly was worth more than ford motor company and general motors um when the stock reached its height at about $68 a share, it's down to about $6 a share, Richard. Um, so just interesting, the timing of this and sort of demonstrates, you, you've used the term lost leader for a while, um, mostly to talk about the Live Golf event tour, but so too with Lucid. I mean, you start a new car company and are going to be manufacturing them in Saudi Arabia. It's just sort of like a very expensive endeavor. So this demonstrates that the PIF is definitely backing this move and this company, even though the stock is going down, they're saying, nope, we're going forward with this. It is common for startups and especially in this environment, Richard, to run low on cash. And then it's really hard to raise money from VCs. So um, I think the question is here, is the product good and is it viable and do people want it? And I think having from personal experience, Richard, and you can speak to this, but like driving or like being in a Lucid, I haven't driven one, but you've driven one. I've been inside of one. They are so cool and so impressive. It's not like they're making a product that people don't want or isn't, you know, market leading or among a market leader. It's just expensive. And right now they're not making enough of them. And then making them is really expensive as well. So they're losing money on each car. So, but you do have a viable product, which is good. And if you're a backer of a startup that has a viable product and needs cash to get to profitability, then it's a good investment for the backer. So the PIF sees that and says, hey, like, okay, you guys need the money. Let's do it. Let's get to the point where we can be successful because we know what you're making is what people want. So, and you also have all these other car makers in the same boat. You have the rabbit in the lead to catch Richard, which is Tesla, of course, uh, proving that it can work. Of course, you know, um, what did a commenter say about Tesla's last week? Uh, oh, lunchbox on wheels, I think is what it was. I don't know why I remember that so vividly. It's just really <laughs> funny. Anyway, just an interesting update on Lucid. The cars, they're coming out with their SUV next year. Should be awesome. But they're, you know, they're struggling a little bit. You know, so much of what Saudi Arabia does is loss leader. I mean, the hydrogen play is a loss leader. Uh, you know, a lot of their giga projects are loss leaders by intention, intention and design because they, they, they see these as eventually turning a terrific profit and creating all sorts of 
you know, positive byproducts, including employment, technology transfer, upskilling, you name it. All things very important for Saudi Arabia. The Lucid thing is fascinating because we love it. We think it's beautiful. Every report we've seen is that it's well-made. What their issue now, as I understand it, is not supply chains. It's that they have difficulty converting reservations into purchases. So, you know, this is not this. This has moved into a different sort of sphere of challenge. Um, and Peter Rawlinson, the, 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 you know, the CEO, has basically said that, you know, 2023 has to be a marketing year because not enough people know about it. And that's his supposition. And hopefully they're right. But I mean, they produced in this first quarter, they produced 2,314 Lucid Air models and delivered 1,406. That's just not going to cut it. And their, you know, reservations, <clears throat> you know, that were up to 34,000 reservations. And that's like my buddy who owns one. That's what he did. He, there was a Lucid um, showroom out of Tyson's Tyson's Corner. And he went in and put his reservation in. and and But he converted it and, and went through with the purchase. Uh, and and there's plenty out there, but again, we're fans, so we're probably not very good, you know, in terms of our perspective. But the, you know, when you look at it, it starts at 87.4. That's the mm -hmm. pure. Next one touring 107.4, Grand Touring 138, and the Grand Touring Performance 179. <clears throat> you know, it, it, it's concerning if you know demand is lagging. On the flip side, I mean, everyone needs to remember, and not everyone needs to remember, but it's good to remember. I mean, Elon invested $6.5 million in Tesla in 2004, became the CEO uh, in 2008. They rolled out their first model in 2012, mm -hmm. made their first profit in 2020. I mean, it's a process. And uh, he went through all these, you know, Tesla went all through all this, you know, people going, you're never going to turn a profit. You're never going to turn a profit, you know, just hemorrhaging money on, on R and D and, and that sort of thing. And I think it's a fascinating play for Saudi Arabia because you could see in the future <clears throat> them taking lucid private. Yeah. I mean, they, they own close to 70% of it now. Um, they clearly believe in the technology. Um, Lucid, as even though it's in a difficult span now, I mean, it's awfully nice to have this kind of backer uh, because, you know, the burn rate and, and available cash is always the challenge for startups. And they, they have a backer who has said, you know, we're with you all the way on this, it appears, which is uh, which is really has got to be really encouraging. Uh, but, yeah, it gives Saudi Arabia, uh, it gives Saudi Arabia and the PIF some options on what they might want to do. And uh, but Lucid really has to at this point really uh, maybe it has to market better, maybe come out with a less expensive version, um, <clears throat> as well as you know they just they just have to have to keep plugging at it and and there is the Tesla model that it takes a long time but I'm sure they want to move along that trajectory as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think both of those things, Richard, are important. We like it because we have had the opportunity to be inside of one and to see it and, you know, to get up close to it. But if you said they only made 1400 this year, it's kind of amazing that one of your friends has one. And then there's some dude that lives near me here in St. Michael's that has one. I see it like like twice a week. He's, he's got to live really close to me because he's I see it all the time like oh, lucid. Wow. Um, I mean, it's, it's, which is amazing, but we've seen it. We've been like, oh, this is cool. So we like it, but I guess not enough people are seeing it and liking it. 
Well, and if I had the money, I'd buy one tomorrow because not only it's 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 got to you know my friends uh, their their max range is five hundred miles. My friends is four thirty. That's a you know, and he Pretty bought high. it. You know, he had a Tesla. He's a UVA grad. Oh, nice. So he's smart he go, and cool. He yeah. goes down to yeah, exactly. Smart and cool, just like you, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, he goes back and forth to games and 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 sporting events and 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 other things all the time. And you know, he couldn't do it on the Tesla in one charge. Uh, the Lucid eats that up, down and back, no problem. Yeah. Uh, and on top of that, you look better doing it, in my opinion. Yeah, they just have more of an elegant kind of look to them. But I, and so I was going to also add too that you know you're right. I think about the experience and the marketing and stuff like that. I mean, one motor trend car of the year last year but i also think that what's important is the you know sort of car for the masses like 80 to one hundred thousand dollars is just too much for most buyers you know it it, you know it's for wealthy early adapters which is what the what the ev market has been but increasingly it's you know you're going you're you know less expensive more easily attained uh electrical you see that in china and elsewhere but and maybe Lucy can get there. And I think I think we've talked about this at the beginning. PIF has always been interested in Lucid technology. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you you know that remains whether you're selling this premium car or not. Um, and you know they want to. I think it's fascinating Saudi Arabia. We we remember remember we did a se- a segment on you know Saudi Arabia's pursuit of a car you know a, a car manufacturing ecosystem going way back you know decades. Mm-hmm. And now they're, you know, they're just busting along on a number of fronts, and, and it's all mostly EV. Uh, it's just a fascinating period. This is a this is a really interesting tale. I guess Bank of America analyst John Murphy, you know, who watches this and everyone comments, sees Lucid not breaking even before 2027. I think that sounds pretty ambitious. But if they break even in 2027, that that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's actually not that far off. Four years off, considering where they are now. They also, Saudi Arabia also has Seer, C-E-E-R, which is going to be another car company that they're starting from scratch, have already started hiring key people for. So you wonder if there maybe is going to be some in- integration there. But yeah, Richard, we have talked about on this podcast, the history. I mean, first of all, Saudis love cars. If I may make an absolutely blanket statement about a whole country, <laughs> a whole kingdom, they love cars. They always have. And um, the winners in Saudi Arabia are Toyota. And then a lot of the American cars are still the coolest cars you can have. Big Ford trucks. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of luxury cars there, but um, so they have always sort of wanted their own industry going back to the Gazal, right? Yeah. 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 The Gazal, like one, which was, they were, it actually kind of looked like the FJ Cruiser. I don't okay. know. But um, anyway, so this is interesting. And, and because we've been staying up with Lucid, I kind of wanted to mention this because we are very positive about Lucid. We think their cars are cool. But it's just a little bit of a rocky patch for them right now. And, you know, one thing we've mentioned, a consistent theme here is that they have the PIF, you know, that owns a majority stake. So they PIF has their back. So interesting, uh, interesting story here. Um, Absolutely. Richard, what do you think? Let's now get to our conversation with Dr. Hamid Mira, CEO of the Saudi Center for Commercial Arbitration. You guys are going to love this. This is a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Enjoy. We are speaking now with Dr. Hamid Mira, CEO of the Saudi Center for Commercial Arbitration, which provides alternative dispute resolution and commercial disputes in the kingdom. Dr. Hamid, welcome. Thank you for joining the 966. Uh, good morning and uh, thank you for uh, inviting me. 
We're delighted to have you with us. Thanks for making the time. Um, we were chatting beforehand and how uh, fortunate we are because we first met in February. You were doing a, uh, a presentation in New York City and I came up to hear you. It, it was terrific. I wanted you on the show immediately, but it didn't work out schedule wise. But this is perfect because uh, just the beginning of this month, uh, the SCCA, uh, Saudi Center for Commercial Arbitration, has issued new guidelines for arbitration, a, a significant document and one that has been extraordinarily well received. And I, I'm, I'm hoping you can sort of tell us about how this came together and, and why it's important. Now, thank you uh, for uh, inviting me and uh, uh, be, to be part of this uh, great uh, series of, um, uh, of uh, podcasts. Um, again, uh, next year, uh, we will be celebrating our 10th anniversary. So um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's coming together. And as you know, uh, usually ADR, Arbitration Dispute Resolution, arbitration in particular, takes time. So because I call it the trust business. So what is it about arbitration? Mediation is a trust. What we are selling is a trust. So um, we are as a, also you can call us like a private court. Um, the journey will start when you communicate with businesses, investors, local, international, they know about the center, then they have the trust, then they start including the middle clause in their contract. Then if there is a dispute, then we can manage these dispute even through a mediation and arbitration or arbitration. So because of that, one of the most important elements in, in any arbitra institution arbitration center is what it called the rules, arbitration rules. Because it's like, you can't say the guidelines or not only guidelines, it's the the way that all parties, tribunal, witnesses, expert, anyone, the thing that is drawing the way of managing the dispute with all of these parties is the rules. And also some other, you know, great added value of these rules is you can say the efficiency it will add to the process. And instead, there is something called ad hoc arbitration, which is when if there is a dispute, you know, the parties, they will agree about all of these procedural things. The beauty in institutional arbitration that institution like us in SCCA that we are benchmarking, benefiting from the international best practices and then to make it more efficient, speed, access to justice. Let me give you an example. We started the process. We issued our first version of the rules in 2016 and then uh, we started the development almost two years ago. Uh, we formed what it called the Rules Advisory Committee, consists of uh, 16 international experts from different parts of the world, chaired by uh, Mr. Richard Neymar, the uh, former VB of the, the AAA, the American Arbitration Association. So, and with different backgrounds, uh, legal background, like common law, civil law, and Sharia, different, you can say, even practical background, academician, uh, lawyers from business sector, just to give that diversity and that enrichment to the uh, the process. Then we started by subcommittees with this uh, uh, advisory committee, and then they started to develop different parts of the rules, and then public consultation, public hearings, and also to start to, to hear from the businesses, from lawyers, uh, 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 law firms, until we ended up with you know, the wording. So why the new rules? 
Um, if you allow me, just I would like to give different themes that we started from. Just we try to enhance these themes by adding, adjusting, devolving the rules to enhance these themes. If I if I can go randomly by some of that themes, maybe first is to enhance the governance. For example, one of the most important changes that we created is CCA court. What does SCCA court mean? This, the SCCA court is an independent body within SCCA, consists of 15 international experts. Uh, the president is Professor Jan Paulson, Harvard and um, uh, from Sorbonne, and um, and also he he used to be the uh, the president of LCI London uh, uh, Court of International Arbitration, the VB of ICC, one of the most well-known figure in arbitration globally. He is now the president of the court in SCCA. Two VBs, uh, Dr. Ziad Sidari from Saudi, James Hoskin from New York, and again from all continents, from all backgrounds. And the majority of them, they spend big part of their life in uh, institutional courts, such as the institutions that I mentioned. What is the role of this court? This court is to decide about number of uh, technical uh, 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 administrative decisions, such as the appointment of arbitrators, challenging arbitrators, uh, the, the, the replacement of arbitrators, the consolidation of cases, reviewing the war, uh, the awards, arbitral award, fixing the cost. Uh, for example, if there is any challenges related to the seat of arbitration, number of arbitrators, all of these technical decisions will be taken by this 15 international well-known uh, experts to decide about that. So this is really important. This will enhance the governance, will enhance, you can say, the sustainability and of the quality of the work and also these hundreds of years of experience, it will be uh, supporting SCCA, uh, 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 you can say practice. Uh, I will give the two other examples related to the governance. For example, the SCCA code of ethics uh, of arbitrators. Yes, it has been issued uh, in 2016, but it was without teeth as they can say, but now it's an integral part of the rules. Another thing also, the the the, uh, the tribunal secretary provisions also now, it has been mentioned and made part of the rules. For example, this is the first aspect, enhancing the governance. If I go, for example, also to other aspect, which is the fairness and justice. Uh, for example, now the rules give the, the court the authority to refuse the nomination of the arbitrator by one of the parties. Or, for example, sometimes you can see sometimes really bad drafted contracts, for example, in some of these contracts, they will mention only one party have the right to appoint the sole arbitrator. This is against the justice. This is not fair. And sometimes if there is an arbitral award, will go to any court, this will be uh, annulled, will be set aside. So giving the court uh, the authority to refuse some of these injustice, uh, uh, injustice, for example, clauses, um, one of the examples to enhance the fair, uh, uh, the fairness and justice uh, uh, process. Let me give the third theme, which is parties' autonomy. We know one of the main uh, uh, benefits of arbitration is parties' autonomy. That parties they can choose any applicable law, any arbitrator, any language, the seat, the rules. You can say the time, all of that. But in addition to that, 
in SCCA, uh, the new rules, we enhance that autonomy that the rules now expressly recognize that parties may represent it by foreign counsel. There were a doubt. Hmm. Can a, 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 a party be represented by non-Saudi or non-lawyer? Again, the laws, the, the law and regulation in Saudi doesn't say anything, but now we 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 enhance that, we make that very clear that you can choose anyone to represent you before the arbitral tribunal without any restrictions related to uh, gender or, or, for example, nationality, or even if he or she a lawyer or not a lawyer. Maybe the fourth aspect, very quickly, enhancing the transparency and process integrity. Just I will give one example. For example, now the the parties can seek a, uh, 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 a decision from uh, a challenge from the court and to be uh, just uh, justified and reasoned. Now, giving reasons to that decisions also to enhance the transparency. Another very important aspect, we have now like a trend in the international arbitration, something called third party funding or th third party funder. So now it's a mandatory on the parties to 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 um to disclose if there is any third party has an economic interest in the outcome because that will will impact you know the 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 process of the arbitration so now it's a mandatory if you allow me just very quickly i would like to go to the fifth uh, theme which is yeah. enhancing the speed and efficiency for example now the uh, the case management conference shall be conducted within 30 days of the tribunal constitutions. So now we have different timing. It wasn't that clear in the in the previous version of the rules. Now there is very clear deadlines um, about, for example, the, the, the case management conference, the constitution of the, uh, the tribunal. And also one of the things, if you have something called emergency arbitration, we appoint the arbitrator within one working day and even that the parties they can apply for emergency relief even before they apply their case just because as you know if you have a big case sometimes it's very sophisticated complicated and you need time to be prepared so giving the parties that the authority or the ability to request for emergency relief even before applying their case but to follow the case after 10 days these just i have maybe here seven examples but but just for the sake of the time i gave just two examples related to speed efficiency the second aspect or theme is green arbitration digitalization and uh, support of technology again scca is is investing heavily in our in, in technology not from today we launched something called the online dispute resolution which is a hundred percent virtual mechanism to uh, uh in arbitration for tiny and small cases uh for example one of the changes it was opt-in that means if the party they would like to use odr they can but now it's opt out that means if the uh the case the, the case within the threshold that we have it's directly automatically it will go to the odr the odr we launched the online dispute resolution even before the pandemic. It was in August 2000, uh, in October 2019. So we are investing heavily in technology. Just one of the things that we 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 now we add to the new rules that starting from applying your case, you can electronically deliver your request for arbitration. 
the hearings. Now, we gave the authority and the power to tribunal to decide if they would like to hold the hearings virtually. Also, uh, submitting, you can say, the arbitral award electronically. Uh, also, recognizing the electronic signature. So, from starting from applying the case, uh, you can say the memos related to the case, the hearing, and also uh, the, the, uh, arbitral, uh, the arbitral award, and also recognize the electronic signature. All of that is showing consistent support of uh, digitalization and green and green arbitration. Finally, also we mentioned the uh, uh, you know some details related to cybersecurity and uh, the details related to that. Um, finally, and or maybe two final aspect is the response to increasingly uh, complex dispute. This is inconsistent with the rising uh, caseload of SCCA. By the way, uh, yes, this is maybe the sixth or seventh uh, operational year of SCCA, but we are proud to share that our caseload is well diversified. The parties or uh, the, the disputes that we, we managed and filed in SCCA in the past seven years from 21 countries, starting from North America to Europe, Sub-Sahara, uh, uh, North Africa, Middle East to Asia. In addition to that, also the 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 diversity in terms of industries. It's also from almost twenty industries. The biggest part of our caseload is construction. Almost fifty percent is construction to logistic, to financial services, uh, pharmaceutical, uh, advanced technology. Say it. Going back, we see more complex cases. So there is now a need for to 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 have a very clear path for multi-contract dispute, multi-party dispute, joinder, uh, consolidation, uh, um, uh, and also to arrange between cases at the same time. So not only we added clauses, we added a complete chapter in our rules, which is chapter number two related to these kind of cases, which is again. Great, great added value to our users, especially the cross-border disputes and huge disputes. Finally, one of the things that we did in the recent development in the rules is to make um, a substantial differentiation between the substantial law and procedural law. As you, as you know, usually the rules is a procedural part, managing the procedural part. So in the old version of the rule, there is there were a mention that the parties, they have to comply with Sharia. And as you know, Sharia related to the substantial part of the cases. So we took that out from the rules and now we kept the rules without anything mentioning uh, any substantial part and Sharia uh, as an example. At the same time, we, we know, for example, like uh, uh, Islamic finance industry, some other, uh, you can say, partners, they are eager to be in comply with Sharia. We added like a model clause, and by the end of the rule, they can use it if they want. Sorry, maybe I talk much time, but I tr try just to give an example of the themes that we try to cover. I'm happy within less than a month, almost 20 um uh, sophisticated uh, review and articles has been published by different international law firms, the biggest international law firms. They wrote articles and review just in the past uh, three weeks just to show the importance and all of these reviews without exception, all of them, they are, 
you know, you know, mentioning how sophisticated, how advanced, world class, the best practices, and also to show the leadership of SCCA, not only in Saudi, but in the region. And also that came after the step that we took just uh, in January to open our first regional office outside of Saudi in the IFC in Dubai. Uh, so let's talk about this because it was just it was just released and published in at the first of, of May and and you're right we we carried um, a number of of uh, articles about the SCCA new arbitration rules in our newsletter. One of them was by the National Review, very positive. So and, and this is what you're hearing. It's been a very good response to the to the new new arbitration rules. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that even from users, uh, I mean, big corporations. Um, and to be honest, that wasn't a surprise because, as I mentioned, it was very important part of the development of the rules that, you know, the public consultation uh, uh, and also the workshops that we had with corporations, with law firms. So there were a very clear dialogue and we developed the rules based on their need. So it was well received from, you know, the community in terms of uh, law firms and also uh, uh, corporations and users. You mentioned a regional aspect. And as you, you also mentioned when we were talking, uh, that there's a variety of guidelines and rules and you know on arbitration and dispute resolution, a lot of different ones. How does this work? So in Saudi Arabia, obviously, this is the, this is the transcendent uh, guideline. This is the framework. But there's regionally, how does how does SCCA take this and sort of try and make it more uniform regionally? Very good question, Richard. Um, let me very, very honest, let me be very honest. I think there is big number of institutions globally and in the region. And I know big part of oh, let me it's big or small part, but at least there is businesses and cases from the region, Saudi and GCC countries and Middle East in general, traveling to some centers, for example, to Europe, to London, to Paris, and uh, some other centers. What is the added value of SCCA? We tried to think the vision that we started early in the first day before we opened SCCA office is to be the preferred ADR provider in the region by 2030 very very optimistic and challenging vision but that vision has been set not to be just a, a a bureaucratic part of you know establishing an institution it has been set to be achieved and achieving such a promising challenging vision needs to have a very clear you can say uh, a strategy uh, business plans kbis to achieve that before i go to that I would like, again, to go back to your question. What is your added value among these number of centers? I can summarize it in two words, Richard. The first one is what, what can call it working within or developing what called ecosystem. If you develop a very sophisticated world-class center, it's very important, but it's not enough. If you don't work within an ecosystem, you will not be able to achieve that very challenging vision. Assume you have very good center, very good team, very good rules. But by the end of the day, if they don't, if you don't have a very supportive judicial system, by the end of the day, your arbitral award is just an ink on a paper. There is no benefits. And by the end of the day, you need this to be enforced efficiently. 
So, first of all, and I will shed light about what I mean by ecosystem and what we have done in that regard. But let me go by the concept. First of all, to work and develop an ecosystem, not only in Saudi, in the region. Number two, what we call it, maybe it's a new word in the in, in English, uh, the locality. I mean to be global, global <laughs> and local at the same time. I love it. So what do you mean by global? Um, what I see, um, uh, Richard and uh, Lucian, in, 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 some, uh, in some centers here and there, you can find some very global center in the region, but they come as they go. They spend 10, 15 years, that, but it's a closed club. There is no impact in the community. And what is the difference if you have a center in, for example, in London and Paris or, or New York or somewhere else, and you have the same center, for example, in one of the cities in the Middle East. If you don't have that mix, a real mix, I don't mean, for example, to have like, like a messenger or clerk here on there. No, no, no. To have an integral part of that center mixing the international experience with the local caliber from all, all levels. That is not there. Or in the opposite, that you can find a lot of local centers Local people, local knowledge, local understanding, but you cannot have the international uh, uh, the international best practices. And here is the gap. What we could do and what we are doing is to be able in practice to be a real global, the best international practices, and you can find the best people in the board, in the court, in the advisory committee, case management team, managerial team so in all of that bodies you can find a real good people from all around the world number two in the same levels in all bodies you can find saudis khalijis emiratis arabs and international not only because they are international because they are the best people globally you can find both of them so what does that mean for it's just for be a show is it for br no this can say combination this recipe is converted into trust. What I mean by trust? Trust from judicial system. When you have an arbitral award stamped by SCCA, the trust that you can have from judicial system could be translated in more efficient, more trusted awards. And that means your possibility to have your award enforced is higher, faster. And that means a lot in money for you as investor. And also when you have this kind of combination, what does it mean for an international investor and even local investor? That we can help you to understand the culture, to understand the laws and regulations, to understand, you can say, the needs in the region. So this is a great added value. This is a safeguard to your businesses. This is a safeguard to your, and that means a lot of money. So this is the added value to SCCA. Because of that, we saw an interest. So we expanded our work now. We have our regional office in, in DIFC, and it will need it will not be the end. It will not be the last office. And as you know, the most yani, the offices, the physical attendance is that not is not that important because you can have like investor coming from New York or from Paris or from Canada or, or from Kenya or any or China. As soon as you add the clause for SCCA, you can have any applicable law. You can have any procedural law. You can uh, make the bleeding and you can process in any language. 
and this is great added value. And just yesterday, less than 24 hours, we signed with the the um, Authority for Special Zone and Economic Cities in Saudi Arabia yeah. to be the main provider for ADR. We will have offices in King Abdullah Economic City, and we will have in Ras al-Khair in the north and in Jazan in the south. So to be physically supporting the FDIs, the interna the international investors. So you, we are your partners, and this is one of the main enabler for FDIs for investment for 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 businesses and for uh, the the access to justice. Generally speaking. That's a really interesting linkage, and because those are two very important initiatives in terms of the Saudi economy and in terms of attracting uh, investment in particular. So we've in the last three months, I say, Lucian. So we've had uh, Jim Golson, James Golson, who's the senior commercial officer with the U.S. Embassy. You you may know Jim, and we've had Steve Lutz, who's the uh, Middle East head for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Both of these gentlemen essentially advocate for U.S. businesses. You know, and 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 of course, this is very close to our hearts. We, in terms of the relationship, U.S.-Saudi relationship, we feel like the commercial relationship is critical. So, what you're saying is, is under this new regime, under these new guidelines, that the, and you you spoke specifically about trust. So, when Jim and Steve, our good friends, you know, go and talk to prospective investors, they can reliably say, "All right, your arbitration, your dispute resolution." in Saudi Arabia is significantly enhanced now. And therefore, it's going to be more attractive, correct? Yeah, 100%. Not only, for example, the business in Saudi. And this is the beauty. For example, if there is a U.S. company investing, for example, in Iraq, investing in Jordan, investing in North Africa. So we are from the region. We understand the culture. We are respected and trusted. So you can have this neutral center speaking the same language I, I don't mean only language english but the same jargon the same you can say concept our rules is based on central model rules so anything that you are familiar with in triple a in new york or in lcia in london or icc in paris you can find it the arbitrators the best arbitrators globally that you can hire them to manage your case in all of these centers you can find all of them without exception in scca so the added value, you have a neutral world-class center, trusted, understanding the culture and the region, not only in your businesses in Saudi, in all your businesses in the region. So that is really important aspect. And maybe we are helping more the businesses in the region because if U.S. company have a business in Kuwait or Iraq or, or, or wherever in the region, it's much easier to have this an independent neutral center. And we start, for example, we signed with DIFC courts and we have good relationship, for example, with Saudi courts. And more importantly, and this is a really important point, uh, uh, Richard and Lucian, that uh, Saudi is has is a signatory to New York Convention. What is New York Convention? Is the convention to recognize and to enforce uh, uh, the foreign arbitral awards. Now, 171 countries globally are signatories to that convention. That means if you have an arbitral award issued by SCCA, it's easily, easily and efficiently enforced in 171 countries globally. If you have a judgment issued in any of, of these countries, you will not be able to enforce it that way because you have to have double treaties. But an arbitration 
is just one is is one 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 side relationship. That means just as soon as you join internet your convention, the arbitral award is enforced globally. So you don't have to bother yourself by these treaties. Issue the arbitral award. We understand your culture. Uh, we understand the culture, the language, uh, and number two, the best international practices, the best rules, the best court, independent, impartial, uh, uh, efficient, uh, trusted in in the region, judicial systems. So, and you can enforce it in all around the world. So, these you can say package of services is catered to help you, especially as a foreign investor, not only in Saudi, in the region generally. This is fascinating. So, so if 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 I'm a U.S. investor and I'm doing a and uh, I'm looking at an investment in Iraq with a partner there, we can agree that any dispute resolution will be handled by the SCCA. Exactly, and that means it doesn't need the hearings needs to be held in Riyadh. Right. The hearings could be virtual and could be held in any place all around the world. Uh, and the language. Choose any language, applicable law. Choose any applicable law, the procedural law. Choose any procedural law. So that will help. Because of that, we are working now in DIFC. So, for example, the people now, I see a trend, for example, in companies, for example, in in in, uh, in the region. For example, they choose SCCA as an administered institution. And the case will be administered under our rules. And the applicable law, sometimes the English law. And the procedural law is DIFC. And the seat is DIFC. So if there is any challenges related to the arbitral award, they will go to DIFC courts or maybe the newly established court in Bahrain, which is called the International uh, Commercial Court in Bahrain. So the globe is, and even uh, they can agree on the New York, the New York courts. Uh, so that is open. All of that flexibility uh, is adding great value to the investors. So are you anticipating a growth in cases? For example, how many cases are you is SCCA handling now and how many do you anticipate? Great. So uh, I, I can say SCCA caseload is one of the fastest growing caseload globally. Uh, for example, last year, our caseload uh, 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 um, uh, uh, increased by 60%. Today, uh, up to date, we are almost surpassing the overall arbitration cases has been registered last year, not only the numbers and even the value. We saw cases in billions now um, uh, and the diversity in terms of industries, nationalities, sizes, and jurisdictions. So all of that is aspect about trust. And by the way, I don't know if you have seen the Department of States in the US, they issued a report about a business environment in Saudi Arabia, maybe one year or one year and a half, something like that. One of the things that I saw, they mentioned it three or four times in that in that report. One of the most important enabler is SCCA and you know the arbitration regime that we are creating. So this is really important aspect. So SCCA now is managing uh, big cases, international cases sophisticated cases and number of cases and value of cases is 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 fast growing just tremendous solution i i you've covered everything doctor uh, and and really and really clearly and thoroughly i i think this is a fascinating discussion and as we said we wanted to have you on and we wanted to talk about the SCCA because we think it's very important but in the telling of it and you're sharing with us i mean i think it really affirms how 
what a central it was a central role it plays and what a facilitating role it plays um and this will be interesting you, you, you as ceo of SCCA, you you have a lot of hats so there's a strategic hat you know i'm sure you oversaw this whole process of of updating the guidelines you may have to expand your staffing now <laughs> and in terms of the SCCA court does this sort of police and monitor itself in other words, we have you have the the fifteen luminaries, and it, and it really is an impressive group. How do they work together? And is there, for example, are there clerks? In other words, like the you know the administrative side of what they do. Who who, who handles that? Is that SCCA thing or is that an SCCA court thing? Great, um, thank you. If you allow me, just uh, I will I would like to go a little bit zoom out just to show the different bodies in SCCA to show the governance. First of all, SCCA is not for profit organization. We are not uh, related, we are not reporting, not part of the government. And at the same time, we are not part of the private sector, not for profit organization. And the ultimate authority of SCCA, its board, our board, 40% of our board, non Saudis, and expert from a private sector and from the, uh, the legal and, uh, and uh, ADR community. So this is number one. So, and the board, the beauty, the board, yes, the majority of them, lawyers, international uh, arbitrators, but their job is to supervise SCCA strategies, annual rewards, uh, um, also to approve rules, but they don't have any clue about case management. There is a Chinese wall, so even they don't know even the names of the parties, they don't know any information about the, uh, the cases, only you know stats, general stats, how many cases, volume of cases, nationalities, even the, the information that even we publicize, the, the public information. So there is no role for the, the board in case management, which is really important. And this is the best practice. So we have the board, the ultimate authority, they appoint the CAO and the in-house team, um, the full-time job employees under my management. So we are reporting to the board, but they don't have any clue, any relationship with the case management. We have the Rules Advisory Committee, again, 16 uh, uh, members, uh, international figures. Their role is advisory, and they help us in developing the rules and services. For example, we have something called expedited procedure, which is, uh, you can say, arbitration for medium-sized disputes and SMEs, uh, which is uh, cheaper and faster, cheaper by 30% in cost and time compared to regular arbitration. and the cost of it. We have something called ODR for tiny and small dispute. We have emergency arbitration. We have mediation. And also we have virtual small mediation for small cases. All of that products is uh, the, the advisory committee will help us in developing all of these products, including the rules. But again, they don't have any interference in case management. Number three, which is very crucial and just recently uh, launched and, uh, and they started their work is the court. The court is independent body, and their decision is final and binding. And the board, they don't have any interfere in their work. So they are independent. All of these things has been mentioned clearly in the rules, which is appointing arbitrator, replacing, all of that, you know, very crucial uh, administrative technical decisions will be taken by the, the court. The case management team, what we call it uh, the uh, uh, ADR team here in CCA, we have a, a good team, well-qualified team, 
they are called case manager. They are supervising the implementation of the rules, but they are like a coordinator with the court. The court will take all of these crucial decisions related to the cases. Again, like the things that I mentioned. So the court will take care of these decisions. My team, the case management team, they will implement these decisions and to supervise the implementation of the cases. And we have finally the arbitral uh, uh, tribunals, which is the arbitrators. They will decide about the substance of the cases, right, wrong, who has the right, and to pay how much, all of these decisions related to the substance of the cases, it's the authority of the tribunal. But the administrative technical decisions, uh, for example, if you'd like to challenge, if you have, for example, one of the parties, they said, this arbitrator, there is a, a conflict of interest. Who will decide? The court will decide. So this is the map. This is the high level of governance and strict governance um, with these bodies just to show how can we manage this institution? And this, by the way, this is the international best practice in all the international big uh, institutions that they are doing almost the same uh, the same concept. So, and uh, that, that leads me to another question: Is is are there enough qualified arbiters? Yes. I, again, one of the beauties of arbitration, the word is the limit. So we we have in our roster all uh, uh, arbitrators let me share with you the exact numbers just um, just to know uh, the, the the you know the diversity we have more than 400 arbitrators speaking from 26 nationalities speaking 19 languages specialized in more than 20 fields that means any arbitrators good arbitrators that we have an access to and again even if there is two parties they would like to appoint if they agree on any arbitrators even if the arbitrators is not in our roster we encourage them to do that because the arbitration is the concept of arbitration is about this autonomy that we encourage them to agree on the arbitrator even if the arbitrator out of our roster right. in addition to that we have a, a strategic partnership with different organizations uh, globally also part of that is to have you know the mutual access to our rosters so, for example, if we have very niche or very sophisticated area and, and for example, assume, assume hypothetically is not in our role, so we can reach out to our partners, these institutions, and they can do the same uh, in our roster. So there is no issue at all related to arbitrators because we can reach out to any arbitrators glo globally and already our roster, our own roster is rich enough in, in all of these aspects. Um, Richard, I know if, if you allow me just to go to shed light about, you know, the ecosystem and the pillars. Yeah. Can you? Yes. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Just I mentioned about the ecosystem. If you allow me, it's in my opinion, it's five pillars. I will mention very quickly, very quickly. The first one is the legislation, uh, you can say, uh, responsiveness. Um, that you have to have the laws, regulations related directly to arbitration and mediation, ADR, or indirectly, needs to be developed and to be, the country needs to be agile. If you look at Saudi in the past four to five years, it's very active in, in developing the legislative infrastructure. For example, in the past four or five years, a lot of laws, regulations, let me give you just one example. In the past 50, 60 years, 
governmental entities, semi-governmental entities, they were restricted from, you know, referring their cases to arbitration. One of the main changes has been done in the past two to three years. First of all, there is a royal decree in January 2019 to encourage governmental entities, semi-governmental entities to use arbitration in settling their disputes, especially with foreign investors. And SEC was there. But see, from restricting to encouraging, see the difference. Mm. And then the new uh, uh, governmental tender and procurement law has been enacted in, in August 2019. And few months uh, later, the implementing regulations in a state of requiring the governmental institute to grant a license on approval from the cabinet now only to uh, to have the approval from minister of finance further step which is the uh, the second pillar is governmental support the the minister of finance under his authority he approved what it called the 17 or 18 model contracts infrastructure uh different contracts all of these model contracts the model clause is institutional arbitration and SCCA in particular. See the huge difference from to be restricted, to use arbitration, to have institutional arbitration and SCCA as a default clause in your contracts. See the huge shift. And that is two components, is legislation development and government development and support. The third very, very important element and pillar is judicial support. So to, to, to reach that, different initiatives has been taken with the judicial system and the Minister of Justice. For example, we started an initiative by signing a cooperation agreement with Minister of Justice in 2019 for SCCA to provide a, 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 an advanced training programs to the related judges. So we did, for example, the last one, the last episode was in, um, in December 2022, in cooperation with the ministry, uh, with the Onicetral and uh, NCC, the National Competitiveness Center, and Minister of Justice, one of the international well-known figures, uh, Prof. Muhammad Abdul Wahab, conducted that for uh, two to three working days. It was great, uh, you know, uh, uh, training. For example, another one, we started two years ago to start to analyze the uh, the judgments out of the Saudi courts related to arbitration, called Case Law Project. And I encourage all your uh, our audience to to follow these results. We announced the result, the first one in uh, November 2021, uh, 2021, and 2022 November in Dubai Arbitration Week. We announced the result of the second version of the study. And I, if you allow me, just I would like to share some some outputs. We found one of the concerns: how is the percentage of the of the of the courts to annul arbitral awards? Usually globally, one of the aspects, one of the parameters to see if this country or judicial system is pro-arbitration or arbitration-friendly jurisdiction, if they are, if the percentage of annulling and uh, uh, the arbitral award is higher, that means they are less friendly jurisdiction. We were in, in Paris Arbitration Week few few months back in March, and we found uh, uh, there is a study, the percentage in Paris is more than 20% to annul arbitral award. Uh, the study that we did for more than 720 judgments out of Saudi courts in the past three years, the percentage of the successful annulment is not more than 8%, 5% a complete annulment and 3% partial, which is great see the comparison. Another aspect, what the role of Sharia, especially for foreign investors, one of the things they are not familiar with, they are afraid of, is our arbitral award will be 
set aside in Saudi because of Sharia. What is Sharia? We found, as per the study, and you know, this is published, the annulment based on Sharia compliance or uh, public policy, not more than 3.8%, hmm. which is nothing. So globally, يعني, every country, as per the New York International, uh, the, the New York Convention, any country, they cannot uh, enforce the uh, foreign arbitral award if there is if it's contradict with the public policy. So all around the world. But the need, the thing that you need to see consistency and predictability. That shows, this study shows that Saudi court is supporting arbitration and it's consistent and predictable. And just recently, we published the stats that we received from Mr. just about the enforcement of foreign uh, arbitral awards. Just in few seconds, um, uh, the um, in the past seven months, more than 244 arbitral award local and inter uh, local uh, and foreign arbitral award has been enforced in saudi more than 234 million us dollar uh, in the past seven months we compare the stats to the stats of the first nine months of two, 2022 uh, the average the monthly average number uh, in the past seven months is surpassing or increased by 29 percent which is will show you, you know, the percentage. Mm -hmm. Why the number of cases, uh, the arbitral award, the enforcement or arbitral award in Saudi increased for two reasons. The trust, number two, more, more the people, they are going more to arbitration, even local and international. And number three, the trust in the system. So that I know it will be efficient. I will get my money efficiently and I can predict. And that means an added value to investor. Go back to the pillars. Legislation responsiveness, governmental support, judicial support. And I show you through different initiatives, we started to show the output, the result of that investment in numbers. Fourth is independent world-class center. And we should like about that, about the CCA and about the governance and all of that stuff. And finally, and the need in our region is more for this pillar, which is the training capacity building awareness. The first institutional center, uh, arbitration center in, in Saudi, Richard and Lucian, is SCCA. That means the industry is very young in Saudi. And in the region, generally speaking, comparing to some centers globally, they are 100 years plus. So to be able to have world-class arbitrators, and as you know, the cornerstone for the process is the arbitrators. By the end of the day, they will decide. They will issue the arbitral award. So they, you need very sophisticated, uh, uh, um, you can say, uh, professional arbitrators. Because of that, we started different initiatives. First of all, we launched our academy. We started uh, uh, with uh, the best global um, you know, uh, training partners like the Charter Institute of Arbitrator in England, with AAA in, in New York, with the um, RICS in, in London, so with CLDB in, in the US, we started with them different sophisticated programs in arbitration and mediation. We did another very uh, important game changer uh, uh, initiative, also supported by Onicetral, supported by CLDB, Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, which is the International Arbitration uh, 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 Mood Competition in Arabic. The first edition, we had only almost 36 teams from Saudi. This edition, 2022-2023 edition, the fourth one, we have, let me share with you the stats from, you know, the report. We had, believe it, in the fourth edition, 
we had 110 teams, 780 students and professors from 20 countries, from 60 plus cities, believe it. All of these students, the, the future leaders, they started, they opened their eyes related to arbitration through SCCA, through SCCA rules. And again, it's not just a competition. We conduct with Onisitra, with these global bodies, not less than four to five sophisticated training courses only for them and for their professors. We help them. We assign if they don't have, if they cannot assign coaches, we assign coaches for them because it's not just a competition. It's a, a complete eight month of development for them. So I saw a lot of them. They said they swear the eight month competition is worth a master. It worth can say I, I I saw some of them as part of the now the international law firms. They said I saw just recently one of them. He said, Ahmed, now I'm, I'm a lawyer for a year because he was with us in the first edition, and I, I was part of you can say billions cases. The intensity of work until now I haven't seen such that eight months. So Richard and Lucian, we are investing in the we are investing in the future. We are investing not only in Saudi, we are investing in the region. If we have developed region, sophisticated region, successful region, judicial lawyers, arbitrators, SCCA will be successful, Saudi will be successful. Because again, this is the vision of Saudi. Saudi vision 2030 is not only for Saudi to be, and His Royal Highness, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, he is repeatedly mentioning what we are trying to do, not only to develop Saudi, we are enhancing the quality of the whole region. We are trying to have, we are working to have new Europe in the region here. So we are part of that vision. We are inspired by His Royal Highness Prince Mohammed bin Salman and the vision. And to be honest with you, Vision 2030 changed the paradigm. It's a paradigm shift even from mindset. So it let, let all of us work hard to take the best out of us. So these initiatives, these things, is we will not be able to do such all of these initiatives without the environment that we are working in, which is 2030 vision. And also, we are not only working for Saudi, we are working for the sake of the development of Saudi and the whole region. The absolutely brilliant Dr. Ahmed Mira, CEO of the Saudi Center for Commercial Arbitration, SCCA. Doctor, please come back and join us again on the program. You're accomplishing so much so quickly. And I know what you're doing is so interesting to our listeners and viewers. And so uh, congratulations on all the success so, so far. And thank you so much for joining us. This was fascinating. This is awesome. And uh, Richard, it, it was a great opportunity. And for sure, I will be more than happy to accept any invitation in the future. I was happy that when Richard told me how many how many episodes and how many, uh, how many guests, I saw there is some guests uh, were uh, invited for more than one for mathematical result. <laughs> that means that there is a, a room for SCCA to be part. We are really happy to be part of that and part of our job. Reach out. Please don't hesitate. At any time, if we can add value, we will be more than happy to join. Yeah. That was our conversation with Dr. Hamid Mira from the Saudi Center for Commercial Arbitration. Thank you to Dr. Mira for sharing his time and insights. Richard, that was fabulous. It was, it was, it was, uh, like I said, a masterpiece in presentation about a really critical initiative. 
Uh, the SCCA just published new arbitration guidelines. Or this is really meaningful. Uh, but again, I hope you watched. He was excellent. Mm-hmm. Absolutely excellent. And we'd love to have him back too, because they're accomplishing so much in such a small amount of time. And they're right. working so hard that a few months from now, there's going to be new stories to tell about all the stuff they're doing. So just yeah. really cool. Richard, well, he agrees. So we'll hold him, We'll hold him to his word. Yeah, we'll hold him to his word. Well, he's you know, CEO of arbitration. So his word really needs to matter. I'm going to hold him to it. <laughs> it's a binding agreement. Yeah, it's a binding agreement. Yeah. <laughs> Richard, let's get to yellow. What do you think? Absolutely. Yellow. Shout it in a minute. Yellow. Yellow. Our, our loyal listeners now know to just take the dumb phones out of their ears whenever we say yellow at first because it's coming. Can't stop it 89 times in a row. 89 <laughs> times in a row. Stupidity unmitigated, unrelenting. <laughs> um, number one, Amazon has launched a new fulfillment center in Riyadh, doubling its total storage capacity in Saudi Arabia and increasing selling opportunities for small and medium-sized businesses. The facility, which spans 390,000 square feet across five floors with 2.7 million cubic feet capacity, can store more than 9 million products. Uh, we'd, I'd empty that. At this household, we'd probably empty that house in a week. I mean, that's storage <laughs> capacity. <laughs> Quote, whenever a new fulfillment center opens, it has a transformative impact on the economy of the host city by contributing to expanding product selection and availability, growth of e-commerce sales, talent development, and the acceleration of entrepreneurship, unquote, said Prashant Saran, director of operations for Amazon in the Middle East and North Africa. Yeah. Richard, this is a really significant story because these fulfillment centers are impactful and, and huge. And if you listen to our show last week and you listen to Richard's One Big Thing last week, we discussed a recent report by Mukatafa and Kearney on e-commerce in Saudi Arabia. I would could not recommend that report highly enough. It's up on our YouTube page as well as the segment. But... Just interesting. I mean, this, and we talked with Iyad Al-Bayouk, and we also discussed the sort of e-commerce rise in Saudi Arabia from a VC standpoint. But this is just an interesting story and, and is really significant. I mean, Saran, um, uh, Prashant Saran mentioned that Amazon has been working closely with Munshaat, which is the Saudi General Authority for Small and Medium Sized Enterprises, to get 40,000 sellers on Amazon.sa, which is the local Amazon thing by 2025. And these fulfillment centers, Richard, are, you know, e-commerce hubs. They, they just like are, once they're in, they're like hubs where you have all this inventory, distribution centers, and, and associates store pack, pick, uh, pick, pack, store, and ship orders all over. So if you're a seller, you're going to be involved with the center. I don't, this is like really cool. And I mean, I use Amazon to buy everything. So right. this is going to be meaningful to a lot of people. Well, we, the th you know, there's, it's a regular theme on the I-66. We love it when U.S. corporates are, you know, involving themselves. And these sorts of things, you know, have significant knock-on effects. Literally just, you know, we're talking about e-commerce, but it's, it's, this is logistics, which, uh, you know, is an incredibly important sector to Saudi. So Amazon.sa just launched in 2020. And I guess today, uh, Amazon operations in Saudi, they have two fulfillment centers, three sort centers, a footprint of over 25 owned and third-party delivery stations. This is where we get this knockout effect of local businesses and small business and uh, small and medium-sized enterprises. 
a network of small and medium businesses working as delivery service partners across Saudi Arabia. So it's just, you know, it, it's really a positive uh, economic uh, effect. You know, e-commerce, logistics, small businesses, uh, you know, this is great to see. Absolutely. And Richard, I would second your comment about just using whatever's in my house would probably fill this storage center and then some. What was the stat we had last week? It's like 39% of all e-commerce in the U.S. is Amazon, which is just mind-blowing. Like that is just so incredible. They do such an amazing job too. There's so many things that they've done that have innovated e-commerce. Like returns are so easy and... You know, I, I'm one of those guys, by the way, Richard, and I should note this because I'm confessing to you, but I really heavily rely on consumer reviews for things I buy on Amazon. It's the first thing I do is I look at the star, click on the star, Great. and it brings up the thing. They're like, oh, this is what people say, positive and negative. I never leave reviews, positive or negative, like ever. And I feel so <laughs> bad because I'm truly a taker in that sense. But yeah, um, they become sort of little communities online of, of sellers and buyers and you can get really good products that way because you know other people have bought them it's for the same reason we discussed last week i, I don't like going to stores because i don't have somebody around me who's bought the product saying hey this is what's great about it so anyway it's it's you know a lot of people don't like amazon or they they get the flag it's an extraordinary enterprise and the things they've done just as you say the innovations uh, i remember when they just sold books and um and the ease of business that they provide is frightening um and i agree with you i'll go i'll buy things on amazon you know if i find it on another platform another vendor it's either obviously or you know charges for shipping or or whatever or doesn't have that community of of reviewers i'll go to amazon every time Mm -hmm. absolutely richard yella number two probably the most fun and awesome yella we've had in a while the royal wedding of Crown Prince Hussein of Jordan and Saudi Arabian architect Rajwa Al Saif is today, June 1st at 4 p.m. So by the time you're listening to this, it just ended. Taking yeah. place at Zahran Palace in Amman, Jordan. Distinguished guests from around the world, including heads of state, esteemed political and diplomatic figures, and close friends and members of the royal family will attend the ceremony, including Prince William and Princess and Kate. Kate. Couldn't care less well about as, Prince William. Yeah, but... But Kate is interesting, um, yes. very interesting, as well as John Kerry, I believe. Um, First Lady Jill Biden will be there as well. Anyway, Jordanian flags and pictures of Crown Prince Hussein are festooned along the highway that connects Amman's airport to the center of the city. It will be one of the highest profile events in Jordan for more than two ge- decades. Yes. Awesome. This is really exciting. People are fired up about it in both countries. Uh, I think it's been a, like a week-long celebrations in Jordan. I think it's a national holiday today. Um, and Richard, if I can just quickly add before you jump in, the father of the bride, Khaled El Saif, is your old friend. So that's really cool. And I'm sure you've sent him notif- I have, another congratulations. I have, I have I, in the run-up and, and the announcement, which we covered, you know, when when he proposed, uh, you know, Prince Hussein proposed at Colin's house, I think, in in, uh, in Riyadh, um, I sent a couple notes. I've tried not to bother him. Can you imagine how, and this is, by the way, the CEO of a huge co- contracting company that's very successful and has projects all over the the, the Saudi Arabia and the region. So, yeah. and now his daughter is getting married to royalty. 
And, you know, his family, they they go back to the Suderis. So they're a very esteemed, well-established, well-respected family, his wife's family, but his as well. Um, so this is really a big event. A lot of people are excited about it. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure Khaled is just holding on for dear life, trying to, trying to, you know, with all the festivities and all the stuff going on. But it's got to be really exciting. Really exciting. Yes. I don't know. And this is crass to discuss, but I don't know how who is financing the wedding. Uh, there are deep pockets on both sides, <laughs> thankfully, but it is a major affair in the region. And it's sort of like a, you know, it's like a royal wedding would be in the UK. There's a lot of interest on from men and women about what the bride is wearing and the sort of run up and the leading and the ceremonies and it's just a good story. And um, Richard, I heard this morning from our mutual colleague, Omar Bahlewa, he noted as well that her aunt, uh, her aunt is married to a prince. And then engineer Khaled's son is also married to a Kuwaiti princess. So he's like a king making stallion, basically. I mean, he, <laughs> this is really, really cool for him because he's just like, yeah, this this is all working out just as I planned. I mean, I'm sure that Rajwa was always a princess to him. Yes. But now she's a princess to the people of Jordan, and that's cool. And it is does have policy elements too. I mean, this this brings the two countries closer together. Um, you know, uh, uh, Queen Rania, who who, who uh, you know who's the current queen of of Jordan, she was Kuwaiti of Palestinian origin. Uh, yeah, and and so it, it's just it, it has it has repercussions and meaning beyond just the mere fact of two young people falling in love and getting married, and it's a lot of fun to see all the excitement because there's a lot of positivity and there's, and you know, it, it is interesting how people get, you know, really fired up by these kinds of Royal affairs and, and the pomp and the circumstance and everything associated with it. It's really, it's, it's been quite the, quite the to do this whole week in Jordan and in Saudi. And I should note in the United States, I mean, this is being covered by the AP and Bloomberg and Reuters. So it's, you know, getting picked up in the West as well. And in the United States, America has a very anti-royal tradition in terms of our founding, but we also have a very secret love for the UK monarchy and other monarchies around the world because we're sort of interested and intrigued by it. And so I was curious to see if this was on my wife Sophie's radar because she likes the royal family and she hadn't heard about this, but she thinks it's cool, of course. Yeah, um, sure. Makes me think of... Um, this movie wedding crashers richard when oh my goodness. <laughs> when he says two of the great american families coming together this is the same thing with jordan and saudi arabia two huge <laughs> families prominent families coming obviously a royal family but then the all safes huge with, uh, with a long bloodline both 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 families for sure indeed indeed that was fun richard <laughs> that was this is a good this what you're right this was a fun it could have been it could have been a one big thing because we, we'd have gone on forever mm -hmm. um Number three, according to a census published Wednesday, Saudi Arabia's population has grown 34.2% since 2010 to 32.2 million. This is an increase of 8.2 million people. <clears throat> of those, 4.8 million or 58.4% are Saudi nationals and most others are from South Asia or elsewhere in the Middle East and North Africa region. That's misleading. Of those new people, of that four point, of that eight point two million, so we have to rewrite that better. The majority of the kingdom's nationals are under thirty years old, 
The 2022 Saudi census marks, quote, the most comprehensive and precise population survey conducted in the kingdom's history, unquote, according to the General Authority of Statistics. You know, Richard, this is another one that could have been elevated to from Yella to a one big thing. Yes. Because this is, you know, there aren't, I guess this is the third sort of significant census in a while. And so two things about this. One is the, you mentioned the accuracy rate, 95%. 900,000 field visits and 1 million phone calls. So, I mean, this is a very accurate survey. And so the reason why this is very important is if you're looking to do business in Saudi Arabia, you're looking to invest in Saudi Arabia or understand the Saudi market or really do anything in Saudi Arabia, you always start with these sort of numbers. And for a while, it was 70% of the population is below the age of 30. And you would just say that because, hey, like we're describing a whole kingdom here, but it's a young place. There's a lot of young people here. That number is now down to 63% is below the age of 30. And then there's, and then it gets more detailed and interesting um, beyond the read here. Males are 61.2% of the country. So, um, and females are 38.8%, which is really quite interesting. There are 4.2 million households with with an average family size of 4.8 members. I have to imagine, I don't have it in front of me, but I have to imagine that is a smaller average family size than before mm-hmm. as younger Saudis are having fewer children um, and living separately in, in households from their parents uh, versus before. And then married individuals, 53% of the population is married. So that's interesting. And then the last uh, bullet that I just wanted to note that I think is really interesting, Riyadh is now at 8.6 million people. So that's significant wow. growth for Riyadh. Yeah. That's, a hu- that's big. So those are good nuggets from the, the survey. So just so people have a the back out to a big picture. So Saudis of that 32.2 million, Saudis made up 8.4, million people or 58%. Non-Saudis accounted for 13.4 million or 41.6%. Um, we're going to see more of this solution. So the announcement, uh, this included, this first go around included data on population, households and housing. Results on education, health, employment, income, migration, and diversity will be announced over the next few months. So if you don't subscribe to the Sustig Review, we please encourage you to, because you know we're going to be covering this in depth. Mm-hmm. My guess is we're going to have a, a one big thing or a segment on this sometime when it's all out, because it's such a treasure trove of, of information. Uh, but there was a, I wanted to do a pop quiz because you'd always do so well on these. So, I mean, <laughs> should I put my live golf hat back on? So. <laughs> All right. So the median age of the total population in Saudi Arabia in this 2022 census is 29. All right. As of September, 2021, according to uh, uh, chat AI, by the way, have you, have you used that? ChatGPT. ChatGPT. Sort of, yeah. So uh, ChatGPT, which is a lot of fun and useful. But I'm going to ask you the the median age of a number of countries, and we'll see how we do. Okay. So what's what's Saudi Arabia this year is 29. What is the median age of the U.S. approximately? I would say 35. Oh, excellent. 38. That's pretty good. Sure. That's an excellent guess. All right. Meeting meeting age of China. I would say 25. Interesting. And China's aging, 38. 
Oh man, so I was way off. One for two. You, you can give me the first one though, right? It's three percent off. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> one for two. One. So absolutely China is aging. One. I was sort of. Th- well, I guess that makes sense because they had yeah. the great. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I think you can arrive. China is amazing. I think you retire fifty-five or whatever. You have such a, a, a large cohort group that's older. Russian median age, total population approximately. I would say old, like forty-two. No, oh, you're doing well. 40 years old. Okay. All right. Two for three. I'm taking two for three. Okay. Japan. 45. Oh, you're nailing it. 40, Let's go. <laughs> 48 years old. That's awesome. I Because I, I know they have a problem with uh, they do. getting young people to, yeah. <laughs> they do. So uh, you're three for four. Germany. Oh, Germany. Um. I would say 35. 47. So they're, oh, wow. So they're, okay. They're old too. They're, What's they're, going on there? Are they not, you know, young people? You know, what's going on there? They're not there. <laughs> really, nothing, nobody's going to get it on. They're, <laughs> they're working too hard. <laughs> so <laughs> they're, they're drinking wow, too much. That's, that's incredible. Okay. So that's incredible. Right, I did not know. Last one. Last one. And this will, this will, uh, India, median age, approximately. Oh man, I would go really young here. I would go like, well, maybe thirty. Twenty-eight. Twenty-eight. Okay. Cool. You're in, you know, if you're within two or three, I get. I'll give it to you. All right. So what's that? Three or five? That's not bad. I'll five or six. Five or six. Well, I got. Well, no, no, no four or six. Four or six. six. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's you, uh, that's a D minus pretty much, but that's okay. I passed technically. <laughs> well, it's two out of three. I mean, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, India, I thought because they are now the world's largest population, so they must be pumping out kids, and you know. So um, your your rationale and your logic was solid for almost all of these. I mean, I don't know what I would have guessed had I not seen it, but uh, you know, so so Saudi Arabia is twenty nine, India is twenty eight, obviously very young population. Um, uh, but anyway, this sense is fascinating. You remember we did, you remember we did a segment on on a directive that went out to the population from the Census Bureau. It said, please don't, please don't invite your your census taker into the house and visit with them because they have a lot of houses to get to. Yeah, they're so Saudis are so hospitable that yeah. there's a visitor at the door <laughs> looking to get some basic information. It's like, oh, come in and sit in my <laughs> courtyard and hang out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's such a good story. Um, this, yeah, I mean, so what we're looking at here, though, is a younger population that is getting a little bit older, but is not like, you know, aging, you know, we, we can sort of forecast here that, you know, in five to 10 years, it will be maybe, you know, 58 or 55% of the population is below the age of 30, because we know that birth rates are, oh, well, I guess younger Saudis are not having children as early and, and not having as many children because they're both working um as part of you know larger part of vision 2030 reforms both men and women are taking jobs it's just cool like this basically just gives you a framework to look into a world and say oh cool like this is what's going on so yeah Yeah. um very interesting richard very good one and i and you're right there'll be more details coming out of this which will be very interesting to see going forward it actually would be cool to have somebody from the census bureau on as well at some point to have them talk about that would be fun how many times he's been invited in for tea 
at a Saudi household, which is really cool. <laughs> Richard Yella, number four, mortgage lending in Saudi Arabia, a key component of the kingdom's total bank credit to the private sector, softened to a new low in April 2023 as higher interest rates drove away potential home buyers. Mortgage lending has surged in Saudi Arabia in the past decade, often outpacing corporate lending after the kingdom, kingdom introduced regulations. It gained momentum in 2016 on the back of a government drive to boost home ownership to 70% under the Vision 2030 program. As a result of this push, home ownership has increased from 47% in 2017 to 67% in 2022, according to the real estate consultancy Knight Frank. Yeah, I, I don't think there's much to say on this. I think it's <clears throat> inflation has definitely put a damper, but prices. And we had Faisal Durrani on with Knight Frank, our friend and, you know, you know, real estate savant um, and talk about this. And I think, you know, prices are taking a bite out of a lot of these things just because it's really expensive. And, and, and so, you know, people it, it clearly are pulling back uh, and I don't think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a indefinite situation, but certainly in this cycle, uh, buyers, home buyers are pulling back. Yeah. They've had some tough news on the on the market because the interest rate is so high as well. So yeah, um, and there's not a you know the housing stock is lagging too. Yeah, yeah, but it's like a bonanza. Like people are buying second and third homes there as quickly as they can because prices keep going up and people keep moving to Riyadh. I mean, we just talked about it. Riyadh's growing; it's a city. So, yeah. um, yep, Definitely. very interesting. Um, yellow number five. Five. Thank you. Saudi Arabia announced the extension of its Makkah route initiative to Turkey. You know, we have to. Turkey, I think it Turkey. is, right? Turkey. Yeah. yeah, I'm still getting used to that, by the way. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to be disrespectful, but I just you know, butchered it. So I am being disrespectful. <laughs> well, you corrected it just like we did at the beginning with the space program. So <laughs> I'm going to hear from Abdul Rahman. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Uh, aiming to facilitate travel, immigration, and other processes for pilgrims visiting the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, uh, the Mecca Route Initiative, which began in 2019 as part of the, quote, Guests of God Service Program, unquote, is being carried out in Morocco, Indonesia, Malaysia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and uh, Ivory Coast, as well as Turkey. Go ahead. Turkey. I think it's Turkey. I, oh my gosh! Look at me like authoritatively saying that as if I know. I'm just—I'm pretty sure some dude. Told I would me say Turkey. <laughs> I would say Turkey, but we should I'll have to figure that. But I'm, I'm going with you. Because We're like already on the correction territory for next week. But really, that's fine. Really we'll roll with that. I'm feeling so disrespectful too. I mean, my neighbor right across the street is a, a, a good buddy. He's Turkish. He, I'm, he'll tell you for sure. He He's going to be the authoritative Actually, source. I, I, yep. I have to ask Ray how to do this properly. <laughs> anyway, so I'm still working my way. According to the Saudi um, Interior. It aims to assist pilgrims by simplifying procedures so that they can be completed in their home countries. Yeah, this project is cool, actually, Richard. I'm glad you chose this for this week. It was launched at the Istanbul airport in Turkey, um, and their international wing there is new as of a year or two ago. It's one of the best airports in the world. At least this terminal is just so beautiful and actually the turkish air lounge there richard has a golf simulator so ah. when you're on a layover they actually have a full simulator in the lounge which is cool anyway so they're doing this <laughs> at the istanbul airport and this initiative includes visas passports health procedures things that pilgrims do before they leave their home countries or, or they now can do before they leave their home country so when they get to mecca 
um, or the Medina sites, they, they can do this stuff in that airport, sort of like leaving, entering U.S. immigration through Doha. You like go through that undesirable, like kind of headache of a, of a process at the airport before leaving. And that just makes it easier instead of having a long flight and then you get there and then you're like, all right, we got to go through, get our visas looked at, go through the health procedures, fill out a bunch of forms. You're doing it at home or you're in your home airport and then you're going. And when you get to Mecca or Medina, you just get your bags and go to your, go to your hotel, I guess. Um, it yeah. just, it's, you know, it's nice and it's a convenient thing for, for this to be offered and it's good for Turkey. And of course, you have Erdogan winning that election. So, and he was the religious candidate in the election. He'll be there for another five years. It's just good news. Um, and this is a you know a modernization of of this procedure, which is adds convenience for all. It's been fun to watch, and it's just it's fun to watch it unfold. And that is sort of the centralization, the centralization and the and the formalizing of the whole Hajj experience uh, by the Saudi government and. We've talked before about uh, uh, Minister of Hajj and Umrah, Tafik al-Rabiya, how we'd love to have him on the show, because I think they're doing really interesting stuff. <clears throat> um, so basically, a third of foreigners arriving for Hajj are coming from Bangladesh, India, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Pakistan. So it's a big swath of theirs. And then you throw in other Asian nations along with Morocco, and <clears throat> you're addressing a significant part of that uh, population of pilgrims that are coming. And this, by all reports, and this was just introduced in 2019, but all reports are on both sides, pilgrims and that sort of thing. It's really simplified the process, made it easier, made it much more enjoyable. Just like you said, you could take care of you know visas, customs, passports. And also you can do a luggage and housing. You arrive exhausted. You can go to your place. Um, it's, just a, it's just really a, 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 apparently a very successful program. And the interesting thing is, is, is for countries, there's another, obviously a boatload of countries, including the U.S., that don't fall under this. But they can use the, I'm not going to pronounce it, the Nusuk or Nusuk uh, gateway, which is, a, which is an app and a platform online. <clears throat> and the portal basically gives you an opportunity to do all these things, you know, register, pay for services, meals, flights, and uh, and get a lot of things out of the way. So if you're from the EU, essentially, US, uh, South America, Canada, a lot of other places in the country that aren't part of these Muslim, large Muslim uh, countries, you still can take advantage of sort of pre, pre-processing uh, for your pilgrimage. And just, again, it makes good sense. You know, if you, you know, it, making the whole Pilgrimage easier means more come, more stay, better for the economy, a win-win for everybody. Yeah. And I mean, even if you don't take advantage of those extra or facilities before you leave and using the portal you described, there'll be less traffic on the ground in Mecca and Medina because they have these services for other countries. So they're just going to be, you know, all the all the people from Turkey, a Hopefully I've nailed it and if not, correction <laughs> coming, but all the people in Turkey will have done that. So there's not going to be the lines and hassle that there would be. So this is cool. Um, and it's good to do, it's good to talk about this, Richard, to bring a little attention to this. This is a significant service and value add to people that are, that are doing the pilgrimage. So this is really quite great. funny because our neighbor is right across the street and his son is graduating on Saturday. <clears throat> and I was just talking with him yesterday about how they can use, so they can have a bunch of kids having a party. 
you know, uh, so, you know, I was saying, you know, you can use our driveway and the front of our yard and whatever, and that, you know, how to do this. So I, I need to think to ask him how to pronounce his home country. He, well, voted, in, yeah. he, he voted in absentia in this, this tournament. I mean, this, this, uh, election, Turkey's recent election. Yeah. The nail biter, um, Richard Yella number six. Boeing is working on a deal to sell at least 150 737 MAX jetliners to Saudi Arabian startup Riyadh Air. It's according to a Bloomberg News report. The new carrier, wholly owned by the Saudi Arabia PIF, is looking for about 300 to 400 single-aisle jets in total, the report said, citing people familiar with the matter. Airbus, Airbus, depending on how French you are, in my case, a quarter, could also claim a part of the order, the report added. So hopefully another win for Boeing is on the way and we crowd out the French on this deal as well. <laughs> yeah, so uh, in March, as we covered, you know, they, Riyadh Air, and this is separate from Saudia, ordered 39787 Dreamliner, so the, you know, the long haul ones, two aisle um aircraft so this is interesting i guess this would be great and we love it as we as we love it when u.s corporates get business um i guess airbus had, doesn't have a lot of delivery slots available for its competitor the a321 before 2029 so boeing is basically saying hey <clears throat> you know we got we've got a we've got a nice single engine single single aisle plane um, you know, let's sell some more of that. And I guess if, if it's 150 at order, I guess that's valued about $8 billion. That's a lot of airlines and a lot of money. Um, <laughs> but but money. it's interesting, you know, before Riyadh Air was like announced, it was, you know, rumored to be Ria Air. And there was a lot of rumors flying around. And one of them was going to be that this was going to be the international like airline to complement Saudia and Saudia would maybe do a little less. And that was just not really true. But these 737 MAX single aisles, they can fly long distance, but they are meant more to be right regional or just not yeah. quite as far or carry as many right. people. So, right. um, yeah, I think they're just rooting for, on, rooting for Boeing. Yep. Yeah. I just, I think they're just planning on two hubs, one in Jeddah, one in Riyadh and you know, the Jeddah one possibly more being more focused on, on pilgrims, but obviously still international. But yeah, it's it's interesting, and 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 you know, uh, you know, let's go Boeing. Let's hope we can get that. Yep, we know that uh, Her Royal Highness Princess Rima was just in Charleston, along with Lindsey Graham and some other uh, politicians from the U.S. and then Boeing executives to sort of celebrate the deal. And we the dream, talked the about the that a few minutes ago. Deal, yeah. yeah, 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 which is awesome. So anyway. Rooting for Boeing as, as two Americans yes. here rooting for Boeing. Richard, <laughs> that was really a great episode. I'm really tempted to put the hat back on. Maybe I will when we get off the air. Uh, well, actually, let's do it right now. Let's just close it out with this. I didn't. I, I put it right here. So <laughs> there we go. We're back, baby. Getting ready for a, a weekend. Uh, so this is this is the Range Goats. This is that's one of the teams. You know, it, the, you know, any anything named Range Goats speaks to me. Mm-hmm. Yep. And of course, we did see a, a group of fans for the Range Goats, Richard, when you asked uh, where to get a Range Goats hat. And some of them were quite good looking. We just have to note, but the Range Goats are Richard's team. And I said that I might become a fan of the Range Goats. I'm still remaining a free agent, hoping for some sort of agent. sponsor. Yeah, because, you know, the whole the whole point of this is, you know, 
you know, trash talking and, you know, stupid comments. Yeah. If we're both rooting for the same team, then I can't, yeah. you know, whatever. I kind of am interested. Well, I told you that I'm interested in the cliques GC, but they're, <laughs> you know, they might be relegated. <laughs> speaking of, um, they don't, yeah, you're not, not, I think you should go with the cliques solution. Yes. Let's talk. Well, it would be you a buy low thing. Yeah, sure. I mean, that, and the logo's <laughs> cool. Um, had to look up what a clique was. So there's some story there. Uh, but no, I'm remaining just a fan. This is like being a fan of the NFL and not a team or like, you know, baseball right. and having like a baseball logo. But I'm a live golf fan now. That was the conversion that happened last weekend. And then, you know, if one of these teams happens to see this podcast, wants a fan, I'm a free agent fan some, and I can be bought. Swag. Yeah, some swag, whatever you got. <laughs> Send me a lucid, maybe. I mean, I, I'm 100% for sale here. <laughs> Richard, thank you very much. See you next week. Awesome. Thank you, Lucian.